Well, if you were here last Wednesday, you know that we embarked on an introduction to Chronicles. So this is just a continuation of that, Chronicles introduction, and then we'll put part two after that. We'll see how it goes tonight if we'll finish off this introduction. But as we kind of think about what was the point, like why are we, why are we even going to look at the book of Chronicles? And the point is that all of the Bible we're told, and then even in the New Testament, was written for our learning. It was, it was written for us to be able to learn about you and your story, your revelation to mankind, and that we, as we touched on last week, that you tell that story in a cohesive fashion, in a chronological fashion, even through your word. And it's one story about man's need and God's needing to undertake to remedy or rescue man from the despair that he's gotten himself into through having chosen rejection and rebellion of you instead of having chosen to trust God and take God at his word. Exchanged God's truth. Unfortunately, man had exchanged God's truth for Satan's lies. And the rest of the, the story is a story about how God is going to fix that. And the problem that was caused from that, which was man being alienated from God, man being distanced from God as a result of being identified now with sinfulness, while God remained forever identified with holiness and righteousness. And how, unless something was done to erase the taint of man's sin, that man wouldn't be able to have intimacy with God or have a right relationship with God. So we touched on last week about how the big question of the Bible after man's fall is what is God going to do to rescue and redeem his world and his people? If he made things perfect and then paradise was lost due to man's sinful choices, then the natural question is what is God going to do to rescue and redeem man if you understand that man can't rescue himself? If you can accept that premise that man can do absolutely nothing to reconcile himself to God or to fix what's broken, then the story of the Bible becomes very clear, that the story is going to be about how God is going to rescue and redeem his, his world and his people. And so that's the progressively revealed story of the Bible, a little bit at a time, uh, through many different characters, through many different movements or scenes, if you will, as God is going to share that story with us. So we kind of went through the summary of the biblical story that leads up to Chronicles. I'm not going to go through it again tonight. If you didn't catch that kind of general overview about what happened in the story before we get to Chronicles, you'll have to do that on your own. But just keep in mind that it's all one cohesive story. And it's building towards the person and work of Jesus Christ as the thing that is foreshadowed and it's illustrated and it's pointed to and it's pictured repeatedly in the Old Testament but then fulfilled through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. This is the final solution. This is the final sacrifice. This is the final lamb to undertake to give man that ability to be restored to God as you're looking forward to that in the Old Testament. And now as Christians in the church age, we're looking back to what did God do? What were the specifics of it? So a man in the no matter which age he lived in, no matter what dispensation you're talking about, the only way a man could ever be made right or justified with God is through faith in God's provision to deal with his or her sinfulness. That's the only way. So now what did man believe, though, about God's provision to deal with his sinfulness? Well, that changed as God revealed more and more of the story. But 
man had to make a decision. Am I going to take God at his word and believe what God has revealed about himself to me? And when I take that by faith, and so in the Old Testament, they're looking forward in a sense to a coming Messiah, a coming Redeemer, a coming Rescuer, who we now know looking back was Jesus Christ. And now we have that more complete revelation where we know exactly how God went about providing that final or that permanent sacrificial substitutionary death. Not just many lambs offered over and over again as a picture, but a final lamb. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world who was Jesus Christ. And so we see that. But as we're looking at what the Bible leads up to, that's what it's leading up to as we're going through the Old Testament even. Now, we commented on and we covered this idea in our first installment of this Chronicles introduction that this letter was written to a post-exilic Jews, meaning Jews that were living after the end of the 70-year exile in Babylon, which was then conquered by the Persian Empire. And so after that time period, there was a period under Zerubbabel, who was a descendant from the line of David, a Davidic king that was able to restore some semblance of a, of a nation, though they didn't have autonomy. They didn't ever go back to the way things had been, but there was a bit of a restoration. We, we called that, or we looked at that as a partial, a partial restoration. But it wasn't the final restoration or the full restoration that is what Chronicles is trying to teach or remind the audience is coming. The chronicler, and that we learned that that's how we refer to the person who wrote Chronicles, the chronicler had in mind this idea of providing hope to a people that had been looking to the messianic promises and they saw a partial restoration taking place before the very eyes with Zerubbabel and with Nehemiah and the rebuilding of J Jerusalem to some extent, the walls, and the rebuilding of a temple, though nothing like what it had been previous to that. The restoration or the reinstitution of the priestly order and the sacrificial system and people sort of having a revival of types where they were looking to the Lord for a time period, for a bit of time. But that didn't last. It didn't last. And so the chronicler, as we touched on, is wanting to give hope as this is the last book of the Jewish or the Hebrew Bible. So it's, it's going to end with a picture of this has not been wonderful all the way through here, but we're not going to focus on the failures of the past. We're going to focus on what God's plans and promises are for the future and why as we even end with looking forward to the coming king, the coming Messiah, and the, and the coming priesthood, the, re, the reinstitution of that, and the, the rebuilding of the temple, we can have hope that God is a promise-keeping God. So that's, when it was that's who it was written to. When was it written? We looked at some estimates about that, but this idea that it was, sit it was written likely between the 4th and 5th century B.C. And then we touched on why that had been, could be calculated that way based on some of the people who are mentioned in some of these genealogies that we'll go through when we get into the book. The first many chapters are actually going to cover two different lines. One, a genealogy as it relates to the line of David, but then a genealogy as it relates to Aaron and his family because it's the line of the priests. This idea of the king and the priests, these things are important to the story going forward. And so we touched on that, but then we kind of ended there with why was that important? Why does the date matter? And I just had kind of mentioned that the date matters only in the sense that 
If this was a partial restoration, and that's what the people were experiencing, there'd, be not, there'd need to be something, if there was going to be any hope, there'd need to be something that was speaking to the final restoration that was yet future. And it would stand to reason that if you're looking at that from the perspective of somebody living in this sort of hollow, hollow return, uh, hollow restoration, meaning it didn't have a lot of meat on the bones, and it wasn't, it wasn't the grand restoration that they had in mind. Well, that they would see that this isn't it. It's yet coming. Be, be of good cheer in a sense. Don't get down. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Trust the Lord. He's a promise-keeping God. So as you think of just a general overview, while Chronicles is separated into two books in our modern Bible. Chronicles was originally written as one coherent story. It was only divided later due to scroll length. So we're not, don't break it up mentally. This is one book. And another important detail is that the book's current location, as I've mentioned, is different in the Christian Bible than it was in the Hebrew Bible. Originally, this was a part of the, the last section of books in the Hebrew Bible, a collection of teachings and prophets and writings. I mean, that's originally the, the way that it would have been organized, teaching, prophets, and writings. Now, in most, in most Bibles, Chronicles comes right after the book of Sam, the books of 1 and 2 Samuels and the book of First and Second Kings. Now, what makes that difficult, and some of you maybe have experienced this, is much of Chronicles repeats the content of those books. And so many people, they start reading and they think, when they're reading in Chronicles, they, they think, wait, I, I just read this. And so they end up skipping or skimming through Chronicles. Because the truth is, Chronicles is the longest book in the Bible, I believe. For the Old Testament, I know, is what we know it say, but I think in the Bible... Uh, easily much longer than any book in the New Testament. So oldest, the longest book in the Bible, and if it comes right on the heels of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, which get a little bit long to begin with, I can say that from firsthand experience, having read through the Bible a number of different times, you're, you're starting to run out of steam in a sense. And so it, does it have to be that way? No. Um, is there something that God wants to show us and to just give us even some energy to say, oh, I didn't see that before. I didn't notice that before. And that excites me. I'm going to keep reading. Yeah, it could be that way. But I think sometimes the way Chronicles is structured right after Kings, it becomes a little bit monotonous. And that's too bad. It's a shame because it's a really unique and important book in the Old Testament. And it has a very intentional design. See, the book's are not just a repetition of the same material that's in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, but they're, they take the form of a divine editorial on the history of God's people, trying to sort of summarize the whole story in, in a positive light of God's faithfulness and of God's promises. So while Second Samuel and Kings give a political history of Israel and Judah, Chronicles presents a religious history of the Davidic dynasty of Judah, the, the idea of more of the spiritual side of things as it relates to God's promise that through one nation, all of the nations of the world would be blessed, the Abrahamic covenant, the, as it relates to 
the three parts of that, the, the promise that Abraham would have many descendants, that he would have the promised land, and that through him and through his seed, through his descendants, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. Well, that we understand to be as much as anything focused on the blessing that would come through the descendant of Abraham that then became the descendant of David, which is Jesus Christ. And so as we're thinking about that spiritual side of things and, and wanting to show that. You see that Second Samuel and Kings are written from a prophetic or a moral viewpoint and Chronicles, again, is written more from a priestly or a spiritual perspective. So as you think about the last book of the Bible being Chronicle, of the Old Testament being Chronicles, the reason for that is because it summarizes all of the Jewish scriptures. It begins with the first word being Adam, the name of the first human character in the beginning of, this, of the story. And it goes all the way through the last paragraph announcing the, again, the full, the complete return of Israel from exile. Now, has Israel ever experienced that since they were taken captive to Babylon or taken captive by the Assyrians in, the, in this case of the 10 northern tribes? The answer is no. But the, the writer of Chronicles is reminding them, but hasn't God promised that? Hasn't there been much messianic prom, uh, prophecy to point to that? And do you think that this partial, haphazard type of a return that you've experienced after your time in, in Babylon, do you think that this is it? And the answer is no, it's not it. It's going to be something that is full and something that is complete. So the book begins with Solomon's temple and it concludes with, and, and then the story of how that ended up being destroyed, and it concludes with Cyrus having this edict to rebuild the temple more than 400 years later. There's, so, there's some symmetry there. As, as we get into the storyline, we'll see that after going through these genealogies, we, we start to see, or we'll end up seeing a bit about David and then Solomon and then the line of kings that goes from there. Now, what is the, the reason it starts and even the, the references to David they're, as much as anything, they're focused on the positive side of David's life, and especially there's new material in Chronicles that isn't in the other First and Second Samuel or First and Second Kings about the preparation for the temple being built. So there's a huge emphasis placed in Chronicles on how all that came to be, the preparations by David, and then the fulfillment of that in the building by, by Solomon. So then you think about, well, why was it written? And I think I've already sort of spoken to that a bit. The placement of the book as the concluding book of the Old Testament, it speaks directly to its intended purpose, function, and message. The purpose of First and Second Chronicles is to remind and encourage the post-exile Jews of God's promises, of his preserving grace, and of his trustworthy faithfulness. The book is supposed to direct their focus to the coming messianic king and priest, and it answers sort of this is how I would summarize it. The story isn't over. The ending is yet to be fulfilled. So if you're going to want kind of a, a one-liner there about sort of the theme or the, or the overview, it would be that. The story isn't over. The ending is yet to be fulfilled. Now, let's jump into a little bit about the general storyline of Chronicles, just in more of a summary fashion. And if you're, if you're taking notes, I'll give you the high points. Again, if you want a copy of these notes, I can get them for you. That way you'll have more of an uh, outline, so to speak, 
of what we're going to be going through. Now, we're not going to be covering all of Chronicles. The point isn't to do a verse-by-verse study of Chronicles. I'm not sure exactly how much of it we're going to go into or not go into, so just be praying about it. The sense is to kind of go through the general flavor of Chronicles and highlight some of the things more than, more than others. But in any event, we start with a ge- genealogical prologue. And it goes from Adam to the present, at least the time that the chronicler is writing. And that's from First Chronicles chapter 1 almost all the way through the end of chapter 9. So a big chunk, if you're paging through trying to kind of prepare for the study and you're saying, I, I'm going to take the time to read this because if I, if I read it sort of separate from First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, I won't maybe have as much fatigue as I'm reading through it. Maybe I can just try to read through it with sort of a general sense of what pastor has now said about the purpose of this book, and maybe I'll see if that jumps off the page like he's been speaking of. But as you're going through these genealogies, you'll see that that takes up the first nine chapters. Now, First Chronicles, it begins with these nine chapters of genealogies, which are just long lists of names and family lines. Now, while you read these, you may think that it's all very boring, which is kind of true. I don't mind saying that. But these chapters are actually really important. Through them, the author is summarizing the entire Old Testament storyline by naming the key characters or many of the key characters. The author has shaped these genealogies to emphasize two particular lineages connected to the two main themes. Now, the first is the line of the promised messianic king, and that's a big part of the storyline of the Bible because the messianic king of the nation of Israel is the same as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, that we name with the name Christian, Christ ones. And so if you identify as a Christ one or a Christian, you'll be very interested or fascinated, I would hope, in this story of how did we get to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world? How did we get to that? And what makes that or what makes him so important? And so, of course, the saving message of salvation as it relates to individual salvation is a big part of that. But don't discount that another thread in the storyline is the salvation of national Israel and the fulfillment of promises God made to them too, which will be fulfilled as we look into the future. They're yet to be fulfilled promises. But somebody said this to me, and I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but you could make a lot of different arguments about what would be the strongest proof or evidence that the Bible is true. And we could go into a number of different categories of, of arguments. You could argue from the position of science. You could argue from a position of history. You could argue from a p- position of archaeology. You could argue from a position of just internal structure and uniqueness to the Bible. You could argue from a position of a lack of contradictions. And there's many things that you could argue from uh, in terms of forming your argument. But one of the strongest, somebody had said this to me, I had never considered this other than in the last, whenever they told me this, this was probably in the last uh, four or five years. But in that timeline, somebody said to me, you know what convinces me completely that the Bible is true? And they said, it's the preservation of Israel. It's the preservation of Israel. Because the Bible tells a story about there's a special people that God cares about very specifically because of the mission that was assigned to them of being light bearers for the whole world. 
uh, the mission that was assigned of being the lineage that would lead to or the vehicle that would lead us to the Messiah. God made promises and God's a promise-keeping God. And so, in a sense, you think about it, what other nation can you think of who has faced more persecution, has faced more attempts to wipe it out completely, and yet God has still providentially preserved? Think of all of the once prominent nations that were far greater than Israel ever was, that are lost to the sands of time, but yet Israel still exists, has still been preserved by God. So from a logical perspective, you would say, with all of the attempts to wipe them out, how could you not assign some divine authority to the idea that they're still here, that they're still present, that they're still a faithful remnant and always, and always will be? Something that just to consider, but that's as you get into these genealogies, you have this first line that's, that's shown of all these names, so don't get lost in the names, but just see this is tracing the line of Judah. Why? Because that's leading to King David, ultimately leading to the messianic promise that was given that the Messiah would come through the line of David. The other family line that gets a lot of emphasis is that of the priesthood, the descendants of Aaron who worked in the Jerusalem temple not just there, starting with the tabernacle, but then in the temple. And so right from the start, you can see these two themes of the books of Chronicles, hope for the Messiah and hope for a new temple, a, a center of worship of the one true God. And they're rooted deeply in these genealogies. That's why they're listed. How does the New Testament, if this is how the Old Testament ends in a sense, how does the New Testament begin? with another genealogy, right? So why? It's so that we can trace that we have a faithful God who keeps his promises and he's gonna put the evidence right down on the pages of scripture. Now the second main section takes up the rest of First Chronicles and leads us about nine chapters into the book of Second Chronicles and that's the united monarchy of Saul, David, and Solomon. So we have Adam to the present in terms of this, these genealogies, one track tracing the messianic line, one tracking the Aaronic priesthood or the line of the priests. Then we have this section of the storyline. Remember, we're condensing the story of the, Jew, the Jewish story in its entirety. We're condensing it, in a sense, into these fi this final book of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so we track these first three kings of the United Kingdom. Now, if you wanted to help make some sense of what all this king stuff is about, you would know that in the storyline of the people of Israel, of course, you have 2,000 years of human history, roughly one-third of human history, where there's no such thing as Jews or Gentiles. God doesn't give any special emphasis to any one nationality over another. That's up to the point of the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So in 11 chapters, of the Bible, we have 2,000 years or one-third of human history covered in, the, in that first 2,000 years. Then from picking up with Genesis chapter 12 through the 50th chapter of Genesis, and then for the whole rest of the Old Testament, there's a story being told about the descendants of one particular person. Now, does that mean that God forgot about all of the other people that were on the earth? The answer is no. Does that mean nothing was happening with all the other people on the world, in the, in the earth? And the answer is no. Does it mean none of them 
had put their faith in God or were trusting God to provide for their sinfulness in the whole rest of the world. No, it doesn't mean that. It means that the Bible chooses to tell a story of redemption, and thus it focuses on the vehicle for that redemption, which was the story of the nation of Israel. And if you don't believe me or you're not sure about that, ask yourself, and I've touched on it before, but ask yourself even about a story like the story of Melchizedek. He's said to be a priest of the Most High God. He comes out to meet Abraham after Abraham has gone off to try to rescue his nephew Lot, and they have an interaction where he's said to be a priest of the Most High God. Now, he's not a part of Abraham's family in that sense. There's some that would say this is even maybe a Christophany, a reference to even Jesus Christ appearing in the Old Testament, but it seems to be a a real story in the sense that of a real person. In fact, Abraham even gives 10% of all of the spoils of what he had just got in battle. He gives it to this king as a, a way to support or to sort of acknowledge his responsibility or his role as a priest of God. Now, I'm not an expert on these things. If you, want, if you have some other view of that, that's fine. I'm just saying there's other things going on in the world besides what's going on here with this, this, the way that the story is focused on the nation of Israel. My point being, from Abraham to Christ, you have roughly 2,000 years of human history. The last 400 years leading up to Christ is silent. There's nothing written about it. So you really have about 1,600 years of human history covered between Genesis chapter 12 and the end of the, the, end of the Old Testament. So if you're following this story, well, at some point, the nation of Israel is really a fledgling nation, meaning there's no structure to it. They grew to be, uh, tr- uh, they were a nomadic people. They lived in tents. They grew to be in Egypt, though a more settled people living in a very fertile place called Goshen. They got to be a very large nation, so large that at some point, we don't know all the details, that they lost favor with the Egyptians and were put into captivity, were put into bondage as slaves. Well, then as they are finally, they have the exodus, or you have Moses pictured as the first redeemer to provide that escape from bondage, which is what Jesus did, provided us escape from the bondage we were into the debt of sin and the power of sin, and one day the presence of sin. But as you see it as that way, then you look at the story and all of a sudden this, this exodus nation that's as many as two million plus people, all of a sudden they need some stru- there needs to be some structure, right? It starts off with Abraham, he's got Miriam helping him, his sister, he's got Aaron helping to some extent, but at some point there has to be more, more to this. And so then there's elders, there's leaders that are appointed to help with the administration of this thing. And I think it's 70. Maybe I got that number wrong. Anyone, anyone want to confirm that? How many it was? No takers? Okay. I think it's 70 that were first appointed. I'll double check that. In any event, then God gives them very specific rules. Rules we'll call the civil law for how a a nation should be administered in terms of how do you deal with the different things that come up. A ceremonial law, how should you worship me? And a moral law, what what do I say is right and wrong? Give us some guidance, give us some structure. Well, that then leads us right into the coming across. We have the years of wandering. The Joshua generation finally comes into the promised land. They start conquering this area. 
But you're still operating then with Joshua's leadership, but eventually then you get into this phase where there's judges that God is using to sort of give some stability and, and help administer this nation. What does that lead to then? Well, that leads then to a period where in that day there was no king in Israel. They looked around, they saw other nations have kings, we want a king too. Samuel says you already had a king, but God, he knew this in his plan, he had incorporated this into his plan, and so they get who? They get Saul. And now you'll, you'll see that you have this phase that we're talking about here where we're now going to cover this period of what happens then. So we have Saul. A united kingdom only exists for three kings, Saul and David and Solomon. And during that time period, the nation is very successful. The nation has a lot of expansion. The nation has a lot of wealth. They have a lot of military might. And that doesn't last for long because as soon as Solomon dies, you have now a nation that's divided. Ten northern tribes separate from Judah, which is, in fact, Benjamin and Judah together. And so you think about, that's what we're talking about here when we talk about the united monarchy. I, I know that was a little bit long, but it's telling that story of what happened during that time period when everyone was still together. And so the story briefly covers Saul's death in chapter 10, and then the rest of First Chronicles paints a picture of the messianic ideal by whitewashing the story of David. So David is used as a picture of the messianic ideal, the ideal king, and that's why a lot of the negative stories of David are left out. The author of Chronicles, which is very different than the author of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, the author leaves out all the negative stories in which David is portrayed as weak or immoral. All of that's gone from Chronicles. We're only left with the stories that portray him as a faithful man. And so, for example, Saul's chasing him around the desert and persecuting him. The story of David's adultery with Bathsheba the following, uh, and the following murder of her husband. These things are left out of Chronicles. And the reason being is that's not the intent of Chronicles. The intent of Chronicles isn't to paint a whole picture of failure, but to paint a picture of hope. And as David is sort of, this is a human representation of a future king of kings that would come that would be the perfect king who would come through this Davidic line. So there's also new material. In addition to leaving out some of the bad material, there's a lot of new material that's added that shows David in a very positive light. There's a large book of chapters from 22 through 29 in which David makes preparations for the first temple, arranging for builders, arranging for Levites to, to be able to serve in it, choirs to sing in it. The author even goes so far as to picture David as a figure like Moses. And God gives David the plans for building the temple just as he gave plans to Moses for the tabernacle. And if you want to see that comparison, take a look at 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 11 through 19, and Exodus 25, 9. Compare, compare those two things. We're not going to do it for the sake of time here tonight, but if you're the person who's interested in those kinds of things, 1 Chronicles 28, 11 through 19, compare that with the instructions given to Moses in Exodus 25, I have verse 9, there might be more to it than that. Now, why is there all this new material about David? The author is not trying to hide David's flaws. He knows that anyone can go and read about them in the books of Samuel. 
It seems instead that the author is trying to portray, portray David as this, again, I said, ideal king in order to create a narrative prophecy that points to the image of the future messianic king. Now, this is very similar to the ways that Jeremiah and Ezekiel spoke of the coming Messiah as a new David, a new David. Turn to Jeremiah 39, and you'll see what I'm talking about in terms of why whitewash this story of David, again, as it takes up a giant chunk of First Chronicles. Why whitewash this story? Well, it's because there's this picture. It's, remember, the Bible, is so much of it is symbolism pointing to what's coming next. So take a look at Jeremiah. Let's see if I can get there. And we want Jeremiah chapter 30. Verse 9. And again, the Messiah is being spoken about here. So verse 9. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. Is David still alive? Is he actually referring to David literally here? No. He's referring to the Messiah or David as a picture of the coming future king who ends up being, we know, Jesus Christ, the Savior, whom I will raise up for them. And so that's in a sense, so some people I think have struggled with why would, they would even say the Bible is inconsistent or the Bible contradicts itself by leaving out these stories and chronicles that are clearly there in, in Samuel. And that's, the answer is that's not the case at all. They have a different purpose. They have a different purpose, so they tell different stories. Now, the idea becomes clear when you read the story of God's covenant promise to David in 1 Chronicles 17 and compare it to its earlier parallel in 2 Samuel 7. The author of Chronicles definitively highlights the fact that neither David, Solomon, nor any of the kings from that line were the Messianic king. However, when the Messiah does come, he will be a king like the idealized David of these stories. For the author, these classic stories of David from the past were really glimpses into the future kingdom of God. And so I tell you this in advance because that's what makes Chronicles so much different from these other books is there's trying to, this is trying to be foreshadowing of what would come in the person and form of Jesus Christ and even the messianic kingdom that will occur in the future. In the first nine chapters the first nine chapters of Second Chronicles concludes the story of the divided kingdom with nine chapters summarizing Solomon's life. So remember, we talked about as we get all the way into the ninth chapter of Second Chronicles, we're finishing up this one story, of, though, about the united monarchy. Remember, it just barely touches on Saul, talks a lot about David for the whole rest of First Chronicles. And then the first nine chapters of Second Chronicles, we're going to talk about Solomon's life. The focus of that, though, is going to be on the building of the temple, the establishment of temple worship, and those are going to be central throughout that section of Chronicles. Now, appropriate, this is appropriate given the focus of the Bible is man's relationship with God and proper worship of God in righteousness, which only God can facilitate. And you think about coming to God on his terms, worshiping, as, worshiping him as he sets out. And for the nation of Israel, that was through the temple first the tabernacle and then the t temple system of worship. 
Second Chronicles begins with Solomon's glorious temple. And then as we talked about, and I had mentioned this earlier, the second Chronicles, it ends then with a promise or a picture or a glimpse or a foreshadowing of Cyrus's edict to rebuild the temple. Again, 400 years later, that's literally to rebuild it in part, a partial rebuild, but with a look toward the future. Now, if we keep looking into the rest of Second Chronicles, we have starting in chapter 10 and moving through the 36th chapter, the history of Judah and the later Davidic kings. So this is almost the whole rest of Second Chronicles. Now all of a sudden, Chronicles doesn't seem so big, right? We have nine chapters of genealogies showing us the, the bloodlines of the Messiah and the priesthood. Then we have the whole rest of First Chronicles telling the story, a whitewashed story of David as the messianic ideal. Then we have the first nine chapters of Second Chronicles talking about Solomon. Then we have the next 26 chapters or the whole rest of Second Chronicles telling the rest of the history of Judah with a focus on, though, the Davidic kings. There's, there's not a focus on the kings of Israel, the 10, the 10 northern tribes. The focus is on the kings of Judah. That's very different than First and Second Kings. Well, why? Because the focus of the story at the end of the Old Testament, reminding people of the hope that they have in the coming Christ and the coming redemption, the coming reconciliation, it, the focus is on the bloodline of Christ and how through these kings, there's going to one day be a king of kings. And so that's why the story is a bit different. There's a different focus and emphasis. So as you move farther into Second Chronicles, you see a lot of overlap with First and Second Kings, but those differences that I'm mentioning. The author leaves out all the stories of the kings in, the, in northern Israel, and instead he focuses on the line of David. There's a lot of new material and stories about these Davidic kings. That's one thing to sort of keep in mind as you're thinking about, well, hasn't this story about these kings of Judah after Solomon and leading up to the Babylonian exile, hasn't that story already been told? Yes and no. Yes on one hand, but no, it left out certain things. And specifically, the author highlights those who were the kings that were obedient to God. And so unlike First and Second Kings that is kind of trying to intermerse or interconnect the storyline of what's going on in the northern tribes with what's going on in Judah, leaves that out only so much as it directly affects the storyline of Judah. So there's some mention of those kings, but not very much. But in, in place of all that other emphasis on what was going on in the northern ten tribes, there's all this extra material given to those kings in this messianic line that were faithful, that were trusting God. People like Asa, and Jehoshaphat, Jehosh, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, Josiah, extended treatment is given to those kings that isn't in First and Second Kings. So the author supplies new stories about these kings that were faithful to God, but the author also supplies new stories about kings who were unfaithful to God. Remember, the whole picture is that the, the rescue or the redemption the reconciliation between an estranged man and a holy God takes place as a result of a response of faith to seeing who God is and how God is going to need to provide for sinful man. So if this is going to be sort of uh, a story to point them back to the Lord, remind them that there's still hope, remind them of God's faithfulness, there's also going to be a warning in there though. 
And the warning in there is just look at how these two groups are contrasted. These faithful kings that get this extended treatment so we can see this is what God can honor. This is what God is after. And some extended treatment, though, of these other kings in the messianic bloodline, these other kings, though, that were unfaithful to God. They didn't trust God. They didn't take God at his word. One leads in success. One, one leads to spiritual prosperity. One, one leads to intimacy with the creator God. And the other leads to despair. The, the other leads to estrangement. The other is a very sad story. And so as you're thinking about that last, this last big section, going from Solomon's death and coming to the exile, that's what's being told in that section. So as you're thinking about these stories that are added about unfaithful kings, those are those who failed to trust God and follow his word. Those who led Israel into idol worship and it tells about the horrible consequences that ultimately brought about the Babylonian exile. It tells a story about how this was all a mess of their own making, that God didn't force this outcome on them. They, they were encouraged over and over again to trust the Lord, to respond in faith to the Lord. And the whole section here becomes a series of character studies for later generations. The author wants all of God's people to learn from their family history and become faithful to God in his word. So this section, leading up to chapter 36 of 2 Chronicles, verse 21, it ends with the story of defeat, with the Egyptian defeat and then the Babylonian defeat and the 70-year exile that came from that. Now, how does the, if you're making this outline, it's not that complicated so far. There's big chunks. They're broken down in a way that we can easily track. We come to this last section, though. This last section is only two verses. And the last section is verses 22 in verses 23 of chapter 36 of Second Chronicles. And we're going to see that section on our outline is called an unfinished story. You see, the book's conclusion is unique too. At the very end of the book, Cyrus, the king of Persia, tells the Israelites that they can return from exile and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. He says, who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And that's how the sentence ends. See, the book actually ends with an incomplete sentence in Hebrew. It just, imagine that you were speaking a sentence, and it, it went like this. Who is among you of all his people, meaning God's people, Cyrus is speaking. May the Lord his God be with him, that man who is a man of God's, and let him go up, dot, dot, dot. That's where you're left. See, now, of course, the author knows about the first return from exile and the stories of Ezra, stories of Nehemiah, the stories of Zerubbabel, but clearly in his view, the prophetic hopes of Israel are not fulfilled in those events where he wouldn't end the story that. Remember, this is written long after the exile. So why not talk about how that was a fulfillment of what Cyrus is speaking about here? Because he knows it's not. He knows that's just a glimpse, a partial glimpse of the restoration God has in plan planned for his people. See, the incomplete ending shows that the author's hope is set on yet another return from exile when the Messiah will come to rebuild the temple and restore God's people. So the book of Chronicles, the finest, final book here of Jewish scripture, it ends by pointing forward. It calls upon God's people to look back 
in order to look ahead because the past is the source of hope for the future. So Chronicles concludes the Old Testament as a story in search of an ending. That's why I would label this last section an unfinished story. It's done intentionally. That's the thing that actually captivated me the most about looking at Chronicles and why it is that I wanted to look at it more. You know, some of you wonder, like, how do we end up picking this stuff? Uh, Some of it is just pure selfishness on my part. I didn't realize this was the last book of the Hebrew Old Testament. I didn't know that much about it, and I wanted to know more. So I guess as I learn more, you're going to get to learn more. That's kind of how some of these things go. go. I, I prayed about it at length, where to go from Psalms, and I just feel like this is where the Lord led me. I'm excited to dig into Chronicles, though, more from here. It's going to expand on our understanding of God's story. It's all profitable. It's all useful. Some of you probably, maybe even tonight, were like, man, if that's what we're going to be going through next, I think I'm just going to take some Wednesdays off. But I hope you don't have that thought. I hope you have a thought that says, God spoke and he spoke clearly. And he told what he wanted us to know in the form of his word in the form of a story, but in the form of his word. And he didn't intend for us to cherry pick it and say, I don't see any value in that. And so if you haven't ever given any attention to the longest book in the Bible and the last book in the Old Testament, maybe just pray about having some excitement about this. It's going to encourage you. It was intended to encourage the post-exilic Jews And I think it's going to encourage us as we look at this story and we see that we have a faithful God who keeps his promises. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could even finish our overview and introduction here to the book of Chronicles split into two books in our Bible. Pray that we would have some enthusiasm about learning something more about you and your revelation to us. Pray that we would see the value of all of your word. Pray that we wouldn't get bogged down with details, but that we would see through it and we would see the big picture, the big picture of what you're trying to show us, what you were trying to show national Israel, what you're trying to show us as your people, your sons and daughters. Pray that we would want to know you. Pray that we would even pray, Lord, I want to know you as you want to be known. Show me yourself through your word because we know you've revealed yourself primarily through your word. So pray that we would have a heart for your word the way you intended us to, and that pray that we wouldn't make it mechanical, but we would actually just look forward to opening the pages of your story and learning more about you as we we read and we 